Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Today we offer some pretty much unknown history concerning the northernmost land action of the Civil War in America. And it all started on October 19, 1864, in the tiny but prosperous little town of St. Albans, Vermont, located about 20 miles south of the Canadian border. On that peaceful fall day in New England, somewhere between 18 and 21 Confederate soldiers, consisting mostly of Confederate prison escapees who had fled to Canada, rode into that sleepy town and robbed the banks of an estimated $200,000 in gold coin and paper, shooting three bystanders and critically wounding one of them before escaping northward. In that little peaceful town they woke up the hornet's nest, and created a drama worthy of an action movie, which was made by Warner Studios in 1954 and called The Raid. Add to this story the strong possibility that they left behind a treasure in gold coins during their escape, and what you have here is a real humdinger of a story. The closest I ever got to St. Albans was Keechee Gorge, which is about two hours south of St. Albans. We were living in Connecticut, where business had taken me, just outside of New London, and we were waiting for our new house to be finished. We were staying at a rental, which was too small for two kids and a dog, and we were all going stir-crazy, so one day we loaded the family in the car and took off for the unknown. We told the kids we were getting away for at least a day, and all you got to do, kids, is point, and we'll go in that direction. That's how desperate we were to get away and have a little fun doing it. The kids pointed north, and we drove into Vermont. It really is picturesque there. It's well wooded. There's little country roads where people can be seen walking their horses. There are lots of farms. It's well treed. There's church steeples and little country towns everywhere. It's like another world. We ended up at a place called Keechee Gorge, which is nicknamed Vermont's Little Grand Canyon. There's a footbridge there where you can walk out over the 165-foot deep gorge, and it's quite a sight. At the little tourist shop, I remember getting my four-year-old daughter a t-shirt showing a bear polishing off the last of a bone pile and the caption, Send more tourists. The last ones were delicious. Naturally, she loved it. The point to my sharing this little memory is that Vermont is the last place on earth you'd expect to hear about a Civil War raid. In 1864, the third year of the Civil War, St. Albans, Vermont was experiencing the kind of development that would make it the busiest railroad hub in New England a regional giant in the production and shipment of dairy products, and an ever more profitable manufacturing center turning out freight cars and heavy farm implements. Homes soon dotted the 40 square miles of livable space in town, and shops sprang up around a central green. A stagecoach raised dust along what would become Main Street. The park, which was to become part of St. Albans' raid lore, was cleared by early settlers and donated to the village of St. Albans by John Smith, father of the Civil War governor, J. Gregory Smith, and Holloway Taylor. The green was formerly dedicated in Taylor's memory in 1870, some 30 years after his death. In 1887, J. Gregory Smith donated an ornate fountain to be placed there. Many of the young men of Vermont were off fighting the war in October of 1864. In fact, Vermont was to give more lives per capita than any northern state in that war. The St. Albans Academy building, which still stands today, was just east of the park and next to land also donated by Smith and Taylor for a courthouse. The academy, 
the first organized public school building in the community, was just three years old at the time of the raid. Its students would long remember witnessing the raid from the windows of what today is the Bliss Room of the St. Albans Historical Museum. The first steam locomotive arrived in St. Albans in 1850, and the railroad cannot be overstated in the telling of local history. J. Gregory Smith, who was 46 years old in 1864, amassed a fortune by combining the Vermont and Canada Railroad with the Vermont Central Railroad Company. The combined powerhouses became the Central Vermont when Smith brought its headquarters to St. Albans in 1860, so it was a prospering little town, and the banks were chock full. Among the chief concerns of the raiders in 1864 was the potential to alarm the hundreds of railroad workers and mechanics at the St. Albans Foundry Company. They toiled within the few blocks west of the downtown banks. We'll get to the raiders' plans and concerns as the story unfolds. There were shops of all kinds in the village then. The ladies' millinery, where the only fatality of the raid would take place. Dutcher's Pharmacy, the St. Albans Messenger Newspaper Office, clothing and household stores, carriage and fur retailers, farm suppliers, and a whole spate of livery stables from which the raiders stole mounts and tack for their escape. The biggest house in town was Civil War Governor J. Gregory Smith's mansion, the Towers, located on the upper end of Congress Street. A true marvel of its time, the home was maintained by a bevy of servants and comprised of 40 rooms, nearly all appointed in the finest woods, marble, and furniture. Its opulence was well known by all who lived in the community and by its many notable guests. Among those was President Benjamin Harrison, and then, too, the audacious Confederate raid leader, Lieutenant Bennett Young, who, passing himself off as a ministry student, charmed the state's first lady into giving him a guided tour. Downtown hotels, such as the American House, the Tremont House, and the St. Albans House, were important in everyday life in the 1860s, as they accommodated visitors, Confederates among them, arriving by rail or carriage. One newspaper account later stated, The leader, calling himself T.B. Clyde, appeared first at the Tremont House on October 10th, receiving visitors to his room on the sly, and again on October 18th. He appeared like a gentleman in his manners and address, and read the Bible to his companions in his room, one evening so loud as to attract the notice of a lady boarder in the house. The lady was quite sure that such civil and pious young men were connected with some theological school. The Confederates who slipped into town in disguise were also aware of the ongoing construction of the newest such building, the Weldon House. Situated just north of Taylor Park, the Weldon House became the largest and most famous hotel in Vermont. Two hundred rooms within five stories, with an elegant dining room, lavish wood paneling, oak staircases, and horse-drawn coach service to and from the rail station and about town. Weldon construction foreman Elinus J. Morrison of Manchester, New Hampshire, was seen speaking with a visitor on the worksite the day before the raid. Later, that visitor was identified as the 21-year-old commander of the raiders. Some alleged that Morrison was a Southern sympathizer. He was shot by a Confederate and became the only person to die as a result of the raid. Possibly that shooting was no mistake. St. Albans at the time of the raid had a population of about 2,000, and as the county seat was the busiest commercial and manufacturing center north of Burlington. So to the men casing that town for money in the banks, it was obvious that there was much to be had. Wednesday, October 19th, 
1864, the day following the village's weekly market day, would be remembered as having started rather sleepily, but even so, there were easily hundreds and hundreds of additional people at work all around the center of raid activity. Among those, of course, were the officers and employees at the St. Alban, Franklin County, and First National Banks. For them, that drizzly and gloomy day was to turn sourer still. Confederate Lieutenant Bennett Young, a Kentuckian, was the small band's leader. Young had been captured after the Battle of Salenville in Ohio ended Morgan's raid the year before. He managed to escape to Canada, which was largely pro-Confederate, and home to a number of pro-South organizations which provided a spy network as well as a source of funding for the Confederate Army. You might recall from previous stories here that John Wilkes Booth found all the support he needed in Canada prior to assassinating President Lincoln. After meeting with Confederate agents there, he returned to the Confederacy, where he proposed raids on the Union from the Canada-U.S. border to build the Confederate Treasury and force the Union Army to divert troops from the South. Young was commissioned as a lieutenant and returned to Canada, where he recruited other escaped Confederates for a raid on St. Albans, Vermont. Beginning on October 10th, nine days before the bank raid, small groups of Confederate raiders began entering the town of St. Albans, coming by coach and by train, and checking it at various hotels and boarding houses two or three at a time, wearing civilian clothes, and claiming to be coming for a sporting vacation. They were amiable and showed interest in the town, asking about businesses, including banks, and local law enforcement, of which there doesn't appear to be any at that time. Most accounts number them at 21 men, but accounts differ slightly. They arrived separately on trains or carriages over a period of seven days and stayed at various hotels and boarding houses. On the day of the raid, they ended up stealing at least 16 horses, most from livery stables, some from individuals. We do know they had originally planned to raid two other towns on their return to Canada, those towns being Shelton and Swanton, but those plans were ditched due to the relentless pursuit of posses after the St. Albans raid. Young was one of several stationed in Canada, just days before, Young had received coded intelligence describing how large deposits, totaling $200,000, had been made in the three banks in St. Albans. These deposits consisted of banknotes and coin, and many of those coins were said to be gold. With the South in desperate need of money to fill gaping holes in the Treasury after three years of fighting, this mission was given a high priority. Young and his troops were ordered to loot the Yankee banks and move the gold to Canada and from there it would be shipped to Richmond. The raid was originally set for Tuesday the 18th until some of the men arriving early in St. Albans, including Lieutenant Young, found that Tuesday was market day in St. Albans, also known as Butter Day, and the following day, Wednesday, would provide better cash receipts for the raiders. It was also possible that the raiders knew that some 40 of the prominent men in the village would be in Burlington Wednesday the 19th for a Supreme Court hearing making that day a good day to hit the town. While scouting St. Albans, the men stayed at the five-story Tremont on North Main Street during their reconnaissance visit, and it was at the Tremont that they organized just before hitting the banks. The men knew their targets. There was the First National Bank on the south side of Fairfield Street, the Franklin County Bank, just one block up from the American House, and the St. Albans Bank on the corner of Main and Kingman Streets. So to prevent the word getting out, the plan was to corral as many people as possible on the village green and do whatever it took to prevent anyone from sounding the alarm. 
The job was to go down in just minutes, and then they would head for Swanton, and then they would head north toward the border, after setting St. Albans on fire using bottles of Greek fire. The plan was that the men in town would have to stay to fight the fires, which would limit the number of posse available to chase them. We'll return with When the Civil War Came to Vermont, right after these sponsor messages. And now back to our story. The raiders all wore civilian clothing, and each carried a pair of seven-shot Navy 36 Captain Ball pistols. Some carried one or two extras tucked into their belts. They each carried a leather kit bag, known in those days as the Morocco Satchel, which was slung over their shoulders. All the raiders but one were young, the average age being about 23. At 2.30 p.m. on the afternoon of Wednesday, October 19th, the raiders met their leader, Bennett Young, in his room at the Tremont as planned. He was praying at his bedside when they entered. During the last minute planning, Young placed particular emphasis on those who were assigned to steal the horses necessary for their escape, saying that they had to be ready with them as soon as the banks had been robbed. Saddles, stirrups, and reins also had to be taken. Young then handed out four-ounce containers of Greek fire, a chemical concoction that would produce flame as soon as the bottle was broken. The first one would be thrown into the washroom at the Tremont to provide a distraction to the robbing of the banks. That bottle, as well as the rest of them, would fail to ignite, fortunately for the hotel and town. When Young appeared in front of the American Hotel at 2.50 p.m., the sky had clouded over, and it was threatening rain. Out in the open, he announced to a small group of townspeople that he was an officer of the Southern Confederacy, and he was going to take the town. He was mostly either ignored or stared at as if he lost his mind. Then he drew his pistol, and some of his men who were with him drew their pistols and fired shots into the air. At the same time, they began herding people onto the town green. It was now 3 p.m., and at the St. Albans Bank, Cyrus Newtown Bishop saw armed men entering the bank and ran to a back office where Martin Seymour was working. The two men were unarmed and were no match for the four armed raiders, Collins, Spur, Price, and Squire Travis, who quickly pushed through an inner door, which struck Bishop squarely on the head. The men were ordered to keep silent while being told that their assailants were Confederate soldiers who had come to take the town and exact vengeance for the plunder that Union soldiers had been doing in the Shenandoah Valley. "'We're here under orders of General Early,' one of them said. "'Your men have been down in the Shenandoah Valley, burning our houses and wasting our property, and now we propose to pay you back in the same coin.' They had no way of knowing that that very day Vermont soldiers were helping to win the Battle of Cedar Creek, Virginia, while fighting heroically for the 8th Vermont, the 10th Vermont, and the 1st Vermont Cavalry under Phil Sheridan. The Union won the battle, although the 8th Vermont Regiment suffered two-thirds loss of its men. The battle gave permanent control of the Shenandoah Valley to the Union and eliminated forever any rebel threat to the capital. The last thing any of those Vermonters expected to see in the papers a few days later was news of a Confederate raid in their home state of Vermont. The four armed men locked the bank door and began filling kit bags and pockets with banknotes found on Bishop's table and the safe. They failed to discover $9,000 in a drawer under the bank counter. They found 1500 in bagged silver that was too heavy to carry and took what they could, which was $400. For all the planning that they had done, it was a sloppy robbery at that location. They would end up leaving more than half the bank money behind but they still got away with a considerable sum. Bank customer Samuel Breck was the first to knock at the bank door. 
He had come from his and Jonathan Weathertree's gentleman's furnishing store next door. A raider opened the door, shoved a gun in Breck's face, and told him to come inside, saying, I'll take whatever you have to deposit. Breck handed him $363. Next came Morris Roach, 17 years old, with deposits entrusted to him by his employer. He gave up $210. Roach and Breck were then led to a back room where Collins lectured them about General Sheridan and how this day was one of retaliation. Bank manager Seymour was asked if there was any gold on the premises, and he refused to answer. Then he asked if he could have time to inventory so he could post his losses. Collins told him to raise his hand and swear allegiance to the Confederacy, and swear that they would not report the robbery for two hours. Lieutenant Young would later send a letter to the town, including full payment for his hotel room, and saying that those men could now lower their hands. As it turned out, $80,000 was taken from the St. Albans Bank. Seymour had somehow diverted their attention from two stashes, totaling more than what the robbers got. Those must have been some large bags slung over their shoulders to hold $80,000 in notes and coin, but they managed it. When the men heard the sound of firearms outside, they exited the bank, guns drawn, ready to face whatever was waiting outside the bank door. They were hoping the timing was right, because by then all three banks would have been robbed and the villagers would have been rounded up and held under gunpoint in the village green where horses would be waiting for them. They exited the St. Albans Bank, money bags over their shoulders, guns in hand, paper bills and coin bulging in and sometimes falling from their pockets, headed for the village green through the newly awakened town. At the Franklin County Bank, Jackson Clark, a local wood sawyer, had come to deposit yesterday's earnings just before four of the raiders entered, pretending to be customers. A raider named Huntley asked cashier Marcus Beersley about the price of gold. Beersley said none was sold there and referred Huntley to James Russell Armington, who had also come in to do some banking. Armington sold two gold pieces to Huntley and then left with James Sachs, with whom Clark had been talking when the raiders entered, having no idea that they had walked into a robbery. This left Beardley and Jackson alone in the bank with the raiders, who then drew their weapons. One of them announced that they were just four of hundreds of Confederate soldiers that were now surrounding St. Albans which they intended to burn to the ground. Jackson Clark made a dash for the door, but was ordered back and threatened with death if he were to move again. Huntley then ordered up all your greenbacks, bills, and property of every description. As the loot was being gathered, Clark again made an escape bid, and this time was ordered into the bank vault. Huntley then forced Beardsley to join Clark. The bank cashier argued that the vault was airtight and that to seal them in it was inhumane. Huntley would have none of it, saying, You are treating people in the South in the same manner. The vault door was closed with very frightened Beersley and Clark left to wonder whether they'd be burned alive in the promised torching of the town or simply die gasping for air. But luckily, soon after the robbery, a man named Armington and another one named Dana Bailey entered the bank, heard the captives' cries, and were able to free them. The accounts differ, but either Beersley instructed the men on how to open the vault or the rescuers found the key still in the door. The men had been confined for about 20 minutes, and upon leaving the vault, saw the raiders as they fled north. It would later be agreed, although there were numerous questions about the bank's losses in general, that $70,000 had been taken from the Franklin County Bank. So between the St. Albans Bank and the Franklin Bank, $120,000 in coin and banknotes had been stolen. 
The third bank to be robbed, the First National Bank of St. Albans, was robbed simultaneously with the Franklin County Bank and the St. Albans Bank. Raiders Bruce, Doty, McGuarty, and Wallace were assigned to it. As the Raiders entered, bank clerk Albert Soles was in the office with a distinguished military man, then nearly 90-year-old General John Nason. Nason had been the head of the Franklin County Militia during the Canadian Rebellion of 1837-1839. through 1839. Prior to that, he had served as a soldier in the War of 1812. Raider Wallace and a fellow robber leveled their revolvers upon their targets. Souls made note that Wallace's hand shook as he shouted, "'If you offer any resistance, I will shoot you dead.'" Raider McGuarty began filling his pockets with bank bills, treasury notes, and U.S. bonds from the safe, tossing some of the latter across the counter to the others, while Bruce kept guard at the door. As with the first two banks, there is little mention of coinage, that legend having grown large in the minds of treasure hunters over the years. That doesn't mean it wasn't there in quantity, but witness accounts don't really focus on it. The nearly deaf old soldier, General Nason, all sources agree, spent the duration of the robbery calmly reading a newspaper, even though at one point an unnamed raider is reported to have said, Shoot the old cuss! To which another responded, Nah, leave him be. He's an old man. The raiders were filing out of the bank, loot in their pockets and leather satchels, when St. Albans resident William M. Blaisdell entered and asked what they were doing. When told the bank had been robbed, the burly Blaisdell turned, met an armed raider coming toward him up the steps, seized the Confederate, and fell down on him. Wallace and another raider shouted, Shoot him! Instead, pistols were held to Blaisdell's head, and he was ordered to give up or have his brains blown out. He gave up. By now the raiders had been offered a number of opportunities to shoot stubborn, unruly, or resisting citizens, but as of yet, had acted with restraint. They were obviously not killers. Not yet, anyway. It was at this point that old General Nation became fully aware of the ruckus. Standing on the bank steps, he mildly suggested that two upon one was not fair play, as two raiders held guns to Bladesdale's head. As the robbers forced Bladesdale into the village common and lugged some $55,000 away with them, General Nation added, through dim eyes, "'What gentlemen were those?' It seems to me they were rather rude in their behavior. Questions have been raised over the full amount of the raiders' take at the First National. Some estimates were as high as 98000 but the bank eventually settled on a claim of $58,000 in losses. McGuarty, as he pilfered the safe, is said to have asked souls about the contents of a number of the bags at the First National Bank of St. Albans. He was told they contained pennies. Just to be sure, the raider emptied one of the five bags on the floor and only cent pieces rolled about. He didn't realize that another of the bags was filled with gold coin. In all, the losses at the three banks would finally be placed at $208,000, and within minutes, all those hard-earned savings would be disappearing into the woods north of town. Raiders not assigned to rob the three banks guarded the streets, herded pedestrians onto the village green, and rounded up horses for the getaway. Many of those who were in the vicinity that day including those who were students at the St. Albans Academy, as mentioned, would later write accounts of the day, having watched the whole thing from an upstairs window. Tight control of people and information on Main Street prevented men in the railroad machine shops and at the St. Albans Foundry, just a block or two away, from responding to any sort of alarm, so they missed out on the action. 
Six to eight persons were being held on the village green when Collins Huntington, a St. Albans resident, appeared on Main Street near the American house. A raider touched him on the shoulder and ordered him to pass over to the holding area. Huntington, thinking the man was intoxicated or involved in some kind of prank, just ignored him and tried to walk away. Big mistake, and this time he had pushed one of the raiders over the edge. The raider shot him and the ball struck Huntington in the back and glanced off a rib. Bleeding from his wound, Huntington, now properly chagrined, somehow remained standing and crossed Main Street into the park. He was lucky. He would survive the injury. The bank robberies took only 12 to 15 minutes, and meanwhile, other raiders stole horses from passers-by, wagons, and hitching posts on Main Street. One horse was stolen from Gilmore's livery stable, and several from Fields and Fuller's livery stables, all located on Lake Street. Proceeding north, raiders obtained saddles, bridles, and saddle blankets from Bedard's harness shop on the east side of Main Street, north of Bank Street. More horses were stolen from Fuller's other livery stable, situated behind the Tremont house. Leonard Bingham, who came up Lake Street, attempted to apprehend Young as he was mounting a stolen horse, but failed. About a dozen shots were fired at Bingham as he fled up Main Street, and he was slightly wounded in the abdomen. Leonard L. Cross, a photographer with a shop on Main Street, heard the pistol shots, appeared at the door of his shop, and seeing a raider he later identified as Young, inquired as to what they were celebrating. The Confederate replied, I'll let you know, and fired. The ball lodged in a door just missing Cross's head. By this time, Young had had a number of close-range opportunities to kill, but didn't. You can blame the inaccuracy of the cap and ball revolvers available in 1864, or you can judge the Raiders as not being wanton killers. My judgment falls with both sides. They had the opportunities to kill, but most of the shots missed, most likely intended to scare and not to kill. Elinus Morrison, a contractor supervising the construction of the Weldon House Hotel on Bank Street, just a block east of Main Street, heard of the raid and ran with his men to see if they could help. Ordered by Young to stop, Morrison ignored the order, and attempted to dodge into Miss Beatty's millinery store. Young fired. This time he was aiming to kill. The bullet pierced Morrison's hand and abdomen. Badly wounded, Morrison was given first aid at nearby Dutcher's drugstore on Main Street and taken to his room at the American house, but died two days later. At about the time Morrison was shot, more citizens were taking up weapons. The town was starting to fight back. Wilder Gilson came into Main Street with a rifle and fired at a group of raiders who were on horseback in front of the Brainerd Block, now the site of Jeff's Restaurant at the corner of Main and Bank Streets. Confederate raider Charles Higby was badly wounded. Aided by his companions, however, he managed to ride out of town with the others. The raiders tried to set other buildings on fire by hurling bottles of the incendiary mixture against them, but unfortunately for the town, the Greek fire didn't work as intended. Captain George Conger, a native of St. Albans and a resident of Lower Weldon Street, had recently been discharged from the Union Army after ten months of service in Company B, 1st Vermont Cavalry. While downtown that day, he was informed of the raid and came running up Main Street from the south. When raiders attempted to force him into the park, he broke away and escaped by running into the American house and then out a side door onto Lake Street. Conger, carrying a rifle provided to him by a female passerby, made his way back to Main Street and aimed at a raider, but the rifle failed to fire. Two raiders, Young and Higby, returned fire on Conger, 
but both shots missed. It's impossible to carry on a firefight with a rifle that doesn't function. Congress started calling for his fellow men to get guns and get busy. Having robbed the banks, the Confederates began to gather at the foot of Bank Street, next to the park. One newspaper article would later say, During the period of their stay, they uttered fearful threats and a good deal of blasphemy. They had fired their pistols many times with the greatest impunity. In addition to photographer Cross and Conger, others, too, reported escaping harm. Elihu Jones, age 67, said a raider ordered him to stop, and when he didn't, he took aim and fired. George Nettleton had a pistol pointed at his head until he relented and gave up his hat to Raider Collins, who in all the commotion had lost his. Livery stable owner Erasmus Fuller came riding into town and saw his horses in the Raiders' hands. He demanded that they be returned, but backed down under loaded pistols and one Raider's threat, "'If you don't keep still, we'll shoot you.'" Following the raid, bullet holes were present in downtown buildings and two windows had been hit at A.H. Munyon's store, located just north of the Franklin County Bank. It was said that elm trees near the corner of Congress and Main Streets probably still contained lead when they were cut down in the late 1970s or early 1980s. The raiders, as they fled, tossed Greek fire at the American House and other buildings, including Atwood's hardware store, where later the liquid had to be chopped out in order to prevent fire. Later, Young, who survived the mission, would write that he had every intention of burning Governor Smith's mansion home. But with townspeople firing weapons, no matter how ancient the guns or inept the marksmen, the Confederates had no alternative but to flee. Acting in great haste, Captain Conger, widely held as the local hero of the day, organized a posse of eight men who immediately took up pursuit. A second posse of about 40 men, organized by F. Stuart Stranahan and John W. Newton, also joined in the pursuit. At the far north end of Main Street, the raiders picked up the plank road that ran between St. Albans and Sheldon. Today's Missisquoi Valley Rail Trail follows that same path. By now it was too late and too dangerous to think of robbing the Swanton and Sheldon banks. The raiders headed towards Shelton, intending to split up north of Shelton and later rejoin over the Canadian border. The group thundered over the wooden bridge leading into Shelton, with one rider hanging back to try to set fire to the bridge using the Greek fire, which didn't work. It just smoked and spread. According to legend, both groups had to stop at times to recover fallen saddlebags which had not been properly secured in the rush to escape. As the legend goes, the two groups stopped just two miles south of the border to bury some of the saddlebags, the weight of which was tiring the horses so badly that they appeared ready to drop. Young pointed out a pine grove. Some of the men produced shovels, and they got busy. And that's how the legend goes. There apparently was some loss of paper and coin between the town and the border, but it is doubtful that any large stashes exist. There just wasn't time to stop and bury it, and they probably weren't carrying shovels. The raiders tried to burn the wooden bridge across Black Creek at Sheldon. Area residents quickly extinguished it. Hotly pursued by Conger and his posse of mounted men, and then the second posse behind them, some on horses, some riding in buggies, the raiders headed for Canada. Among the pursuers was William Whiting of the St. Albans Messenger Staff, who wrote extensively about the raid and later the criminal trials. Many area residents along the raiders' path spotted the fleeing rebels. One man had his horse stolen from under him. It is most likely that the raiders, about a mile north of Sheldon, broke up into at least two groups, 
one heading toward Franklin, were it too divided, with some traveling northwest out to Morse's Line Road. The other party may have taken Tyler Branch Road at the intersection of Duffy Hill Road and crossed the old plank bridge into Enosburg Village before riding out on what is now Golf Course Road to West Berkshire. Some of the rebels are thought to have passed to West Enosburg on East Enosburg Road and Boston Post Road, and into Berkshire before taking Valancourt Road toward Canada. That route would have taken them very near today's dairy center in Enosburg. As the chase was underway, a telegram had gone out from Vermont to the Canadian authorities alerting them to the robberies. About a mile beyond the border, legend has it that Young and his raiders stopped and jeered at the approaching posse from a hilltop, only to soon realize that the posse wasn't stopping. Then their flight became desperate. Raiders Bruce and Spur were soon captured at Elder's Tavern in Stanbridge, Quebec, with more than $35,000 in loot. Collins and Lackey were nabbed there, too. St. Albans historian Carl Johnson also noted that Doty and McGordy were found in a barn at Waterloo with about $1,000 on them. Greg, Wallace, Swager, and Squire Tevis were caught in Fredericksburg, as was Young. Young put up a fight inside a private house. Having been placed in a wagon, he knocked the driver off the seat and managed to drive a short distance before being recaptured by an angry mob. Canadian authorities quickly had the border guarded by a militia force, fearing that other raiding parties might be thinking of entering the country. Lots of angry Americans were coming north to seize the already captured men. Their town had been invaded, their savings lost, citizens had been bullied and shot, there had been numerous attempts to burn down their town, and they wanted blood. Within 24 hours, 14 of the 21 raiders had been apprehended. They had just $87,000 in their possession. St. Albans Banks had reported $208,000 stolen. That's what later created the legend of the stolen gold. It is said that posse members returning home after the pursuit spent a few days searching the escape trail for signs of recent digging or places where the money might have been stashed. But if anyone found anything, it wasn't reported. But the legend gets deeper four years later, as a dying man, claiming to be one of the raiders, claimed to be the one who buried a good portion of the loot before escaping the posses. That story to come in a few minutes. Shortly after the St. Albans raid, on November 2nd, the jailed Confederates appeared in Montreal Police Court, where a battery of respected lawyers were ready to do battle over the extradition of the robbers. All 14 men captured were called to the stand to testify. All were recognized by witnesses from St. Albans. Then, a month-long recess was granted for that preparation. It was during this recess that Young wrote to the editor of the St. Albans Messenger, commenting sarcastically on news coverage and editorials related to the case. In one of those missives, he included a $3 St. Albans banknote in payment for a newspaper subscription. While in jail in St. John's, Canada, halfway between St. Albans and Montreal at the junction of the Vermont Central and Grand Trunk Railroads, the raiders were treated to lots of food specialties from sympathetic Canadian women. To be exact, 40 boxes of delicacies and liquor. Their primary hearing began October 25th. One reporter named Bigelow found the village of St. John's to be in high spirits, as he described, in a festive mood. Hotels were filled to capacity, and the town's residents, he said, have opened their doors to accommodate strangers, judges, attorneys, bank officers, Federals and Confederates, all gathered to watch or participate in the hearing. Americans expected that the raiders would be extradited back to the U.S. 
under the terms of the 1842 Webster-Ashburton Treaty, but the question of whether that would happen or not hung on every man's lip, according to the correspondent from the St. Albans, Vermont transcript. Reporter Bigelow wrote that the raiders themselves were not hardened rogues, but all manifestly southern in looks and behavior. All young men, the oldest not over twenty-five, good-looking, they said, and seemingly happy and careless. They could very well be taken for a band of college boys on a bender, as they were hauled up in front of the justice for a reprimand. The young men knew they were in for an easy ride. By the end of October, the captured raiders were moved by train to Montreal, where that positive attention was magnified. At these proceedings there were witnesses, and those witnesses testified to their wrongdoings as their confidence shrank in proportion. A hearing was held on December 13th, during which Judge Charles J. Corsell said his court lacked jurisdiction, and the men were ordered freed. To add insult to injury, the nearly $87,000 confiscated from the raiders during their arrest was transferred to a Canadian banker whose sympathies were said to be with the Confederates. That left Vermonters furious. Freed? How could that be? These men had threatened and shot up a town, killing one man and injuring others, and stolen nearly a quarter of a million dollars. By December 15th, pro-Union papers, led by the New York Herald, were saying the American people were ready to shoot any raiders they found on the spot, to hunt them out, capture them, and surrender or hang them on the spot. Some were recaptured, and mercifully not hung. They went to trial a second time, where they were released again. Justice, in the case of the Confederate raiders, was dead and buried. There were charges from the U.S. and St. Albans that bribes had been paid. After an investigation, the judge and chief of police, who had released the raiders, and then been lax in making arrests after second warrants were issued, were cleared of any wrongdoing. Just five men, Young, Spur, Swager, Huntley, and Squire Tevis, remained in custody to face charges under an 1842 treaty between Canada and the U.S. permitting extradition of criminals who had fled across the border. That high-profile trial began December 27th. In January of 1865, couriers were ordered to make a wartime trip to Richmond, Virginia, to bring back the defendant's military service papers. Secretary of War Edwin Stanton refused a request that President Lincoln authorize a pass to make the journey a less dangerous one. The raiders that hadn't been caught remained in hiding in Canada. It was reported that Collins, Doty, Bruce, and Moore were smuggled out of Montreal by sled on the frozen St. Lawrence River in early February. Some accounts say they fled to Halifax in the spring and either caught a ship bound for the south or for Europe. Other raiders were said to have married in the interim and to have escaped in a similar way. Charles Higby, who was wounded in the melee near the village green, recovered from his wound and survived. The case against the five held in Montreal ended on March 9, 1865, with the court determining it too had no jurisdiction. In essence, the judge found that the defendants had acted as combatants of war. It wasn't until April of 1865 that Canada reimbursed banks in St. Albans for the funds returned to the raiders. The settlement, paid in gold and banknotes, returned to the St. Albans Bank, was a controversial one. The exchange rate was no longer as favorable to the U.S. as it once had been. Canada needed just $42,000 from its treasury to pay the 88000 American dollars. 
A decade later, the First National Bank, since it was seen as an agent of the U.S. government, received a reimbursement from the U.S. Treasury of $28,600. All three of the St. Albans banks, thanks to that theft, would fail within a couple years. The rebels had been released by Canadian officials in early April 1865, but Young was again charged, this time for an alleged violation of British neutrality laws. He was eager to clear his name, but the Civil War was now over, and that charge was dismissed in November of 1865. It was never known what happened to the missing funds taken in the robberies of the St. Albans banks, but there is this legend we promised. In 1869, a former Confederate soldier lay dying from tuberculosis in a Greenville, Mississippi hospital. All efforts to save his life had failed, and it was only a matter of days, perhaps even hours, until he breathed his last breath. It is believed that this man was named Higby, one of the St. Albans Raiders. During a visit to this man's bedside, a doctor asked if there were any relatives which needed to be contacted. The soldier, now too weak to speak, shook his head, then reached under his sheets and withdrew a diary which he handed to the physician. The doctor placed the small, worn journal in his pocket and moved on to his other patients. That evening, the ex-soldier died. He was buried the next day in a pauper's grave with no one present save for a minister, one city official, and two grave diggers. A week went by before the doctor had a chance to open the worn diary and read it, and when he started reading it, he was stunned. The diary provided a detailed account of the St. Albans raid, the preparations leading up to it, and the aftermath. It described in detail the burying of $120,000 worth of gold coins just a few yards off the St. Albans Montreal Road and the placing of a very heavy flat rock on top of it. According to the dead man, he was one of the three rebels who had escaped the St. Albans posse. Not wishing to return to the Confederate headquarters at Montreal, he decided to desert and return to his home in Mississippi. Shortly after the fight in St. Albans, he rode into the woods and turned toward the southwest. For days on end he rode, avoiding settlements and travelers. After two weeks, his horses gave out and had to be abandoned. On foot, eventually he made his way to the Ohio River somewhere in Indiana. From there he hitched a series of boat rides to the Mississippi River, where he built a crude raft and floated southward with the current until he reached home at Greenville, Mississippi. The doctor, no doubt filled with dreams of becoming wealthy, spent weeks planning a trip to Vermont where he would search for that gold. But his position with the hospital prevented him from taking any extended time off, and as the years went by, he gave up the idea and passed a journal along to a friend. The diary then passed through several hands until it landed in the possession of a man named Hubert Crane in 1908. Crane, who lived in Birmingham, Alabama, was a Civil War buff, and when he read the diary, he knew it contained enough facts to make it a distinct possibility. He soon traveled to St. Albans, and soon after he checked in, he began to talk with some of the older townspeople about the raid. Their memories were dim, and none were involved with the posses. Many agreed they had heard of the lost bank money, but none had any idea if it really existed or if it was just a legend. Crane then began a long search of the area about two miles south of the Canadian border, finding many pine groves close to the trail that fit the description, but he found nothing. Then one night, while dining at the hotel restaurant, he was approached by an old man 
who promptly introduced himself and requested permission to sit and chat. He said he knew what Crane was searching for, and he had some ideas. The old man related his story, saying that way back in 68, a stranger had arrived in town and checked himself into this same hotel, where he soon started asking many questions about the raider's escape route. The man had a southern accent, and he was soon spotted digging in the pine woods near the old road that the raiders had used for their escape. According to Crane, the old man said he was one of the three escapees, and he'd come back to find the gold they'd stashed. Crane asked the old man if he would show him the location he was searching. Crane believed that the flat rock had been covered by forest debris over the years. He would take an iron rod and a hammer and tap into spots that looked good, hoping to hit something solid. Arriving at the location, both men were shocked to see acres of woodland burned by fire. Two hundred acres had been destroyed, and not a tree was left standing. The pine grove that the old man had said was most likely was now gone, and dejected, Crane left for Alabama, giving up his search. That's how the legend goes, although the disappearance of all that forest growth would have made the spot in a large flat rock a lot easier, you would think. Treasure hunters still return to that second-growth timber north of St. Albans and just a couple miles south of the Canadian border to test that theory, believing that just below a big flat rock, just a few yards to the right or left of Interstate 89, and not far from the community of Highgate Springs, lies an incredible treasure. We hope you enjoyed our story when the Civil War came to Vermont at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. We always appreciate reviews, and we'd like to share some recent ones with you. First one, five stars, a great way to spend your time. As a college student and full-time employee, I rarely get a chance to sit down and physically watch something. 1001 gives me the ability to be physically active at work and still freshen up on my history knowledge. Thank you, John, for being an incredible host. That one from Tay Aves via Apple Podcast U.S. And this one, like the info. Interesting facts keeps me connected to the greatest generation. Down from Tammy Chalk, Apple Podcast U.S. And love this, five stars. John, being of a younger generation, I'm a baby boomer. At 71 years old, you make me smile, laugh, and sometimes cry. You enrich my life. Thank you. By the way, Bogey and Bacall was awesome. Down from Mule Skinner 45, Apple Podcast U.S. And this one, five stars. Bogey and Bacall, great episode. Down from Market Pop, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, Truth and Sanity, five stars. Sticks to historical fact. I listen to many historical podcasts on the same subjects that John covers. John by far goes into more depth. John truly is an American hero. Political correctness is for those that want to whitewash history. This incentivizes the learned a context to change history. Every historical figure you can make a villain or a hero. Christopher Columbus is a perfect example. He has extensive journals he kept, and if you want the true story, you read his journals. Don't take it from someone who wants to change Columbus Day to Indigenous Day because he's a mass murderer. This is a perfect example where John would cover the highs and lows of Columbus, not a historian that has skewed privileged view where they drink their $12 Starbucks pick-me-up and watch nonsensical IQ reducing TikTok's point of view. Keep packing the truth, John. Down from J. King, 1221, Apple Podcast. Thanks, J. King. And this one, wonderful voice and excellent delivery. Five stars. John obviously loves his job, and it shows through his fascinating way of telling a story. 
They're well-researched and referenced. He also shows admiration for other countries in the world and acknowledges the parts they played in maintaining human dignity and freedom, not just the USA. That one from Joe, Queensland, Australia. Thank you, Joe. And this one's still a fan. Five stars. As always, love these shows, John. Your 1001 podcasts are a family favorite. My two sons, ages 13 and 11, especially enjoy the history they learn. Thank you. Keep up the good work. Down from Andy Mize, Apple Podcast, U.S. Thank you, Andy, and thanks all of you for taking the time to write these reviews. They are greatly appreciated, and I'm very humbled to hear your good reviews. Thank you. Well, we've got a lot of cool stuff coming up. We've got a couple of really good interviews coming up soon. One with a Green Beret who served in Vietnam and wrote a book called Across the Fence because he spent most of his time running special missions into Cambodia, Laos, and North Vietnam. His name's John Stryker Meyer, and you may have already heard that one by the time you hear this. We've also got Devil Dogs coming up. The story of Company K, 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines from Guadalcanal to Okinawa. It's an incredible, incredible story. That one's coming up in a couple of weeks. Thanks for being great listeners, everyone. This is your host, John Hagedorn. This is 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. Stay safe out there.